Welcome to the Political Risk Brief. My name is Jonathan Barron of Barron Public Affairs, and thank you for joining us at the intersection of politics, policy, and business. Today's episode, Seeing Through the Great Wall. As I imagine almost everyone listening to this episode knows, recently Henry Kissinger passed away at the age of 100. And in addition to marking the conclusion to an incredibly eventful life, I think we at the firm also would view his passing as the end of an era. And that era in U.S.-China relations was really defined by shuttle diplomacy, but also the idea of fixers, the idea that there were a certain small number of Americans, either in the United States who traveled to China or were based in China, who knew the people and could understand what was happening through direct engagement. It also marks the end of an era defined by both those direct one-to-one relationships, but also the use of consulting models that no longer are effective. That raises the question, how are businesses and political leaders to understand Beijing? What are the windows through which U.S. policymakers, U.S. business leaders can perceive and plan based on a more accurate understanding of Beijing's hopes, fears, anxieties, and intentions? Joining me, as always, my colleagues, Johnny Fluger. Great to be here. And Jeremy Furchgott. Great to be here. And Jeremy, as the lead of our China practice, this episode is going to rely unusually heavily on you because you set out to answer the question, how can business and political leaders have a better understanding of what's happening inside Beijing? And so recently, we had a terrific event hosted by the firm. We released an influencer analytics that tried to provide some answers to the questions that we're going to explore today. And Jeremy, why don't you take a moment to describe for our listener the methodology we executed, and then we're going to get into some of the very exciting findings. Great. So big picture, we believe that if policymakers and business leaders want to have a more reliable approach to China's strategy, they need to have a more rigorous understanding of who matters and what matters to Beijing. Right now, there's a lot of anecdotal information. There's a lot of speculation about what Beijing cares about, what they're focused on. And these anecdotes and speculation are not as useful to strategists and leaders as a rigorous fact-based approach is. So in summary, what we've done through influencer analytics is we have quantified who matters and what matters to Beijing. And Jeremy, let's go through, because it's not obvious to most people, how we did that. To understand who and what Beijing cares about, here's how we scoped it. We're interested in the U.S.-China competition. So we looked at official Chinese sources focused on the U.S.-China competition. We looked at English-language Chinese state media that is ostensibly messaging to U.S. audiences. We collected approximately 13,000 citations made by English-language Chinese state media sources. These are citations of people, of companies, of universities, of think tanks, of all sorts of different types of experts and institutions. And we ran this data through our custom influencer analytics algorithm, which scores for frequency and different types of distribution to give us a quantitative ranking of which outside entities are being cited most. And so to summarize, using English language Chinese state media over the course of a year, Every time someone was mentioned by one of those outlets in English, we captured that reference that constituted a data set of about 13,000 reference citations. We then weighted that using our algorithm for a bunch of factors, including frequency, but also consistency, diversity of mentions, et cetera. That gives us an influencer score, and that allows us to rank who is the most influential people cited over the course of the year. 
Yes, Jonathan, that's right. And it's important to note that some of the people are cited because they're praised and others are cited because they're criticized. Our theory of influence is that you're influential if you matter. And you can matter if you're liked and you can matter if you're disliked. Certain people on our list, and we'll go through this in more detail, are those who Beijing likes and praises and others are those who Beijing criticizes. Either way, it gives us a window into who matters and what matters to Beijing. That's exactly right. So even where someone is mentioned negatively in our experience, both in the United States and other places, that correlates with influence. So having said that, I know everyone is on the edge of their chair waiting to find out who actually is the number one ranked influencer, as indicated by Chinese state media in English. But before we get to that, Jeremy, if you look at the overall findings, what were sort of the key trends that emerged from the analysis that you think give us this window, this insight into Beijing's thinking at this moment? Key findings, first of all, U.S. perspectives matter to Beijing much more than Chinese perspectives matter to D.C. elites. Beijing really cares about what Western elite-credentialed experts have to say. The reverse phenomenon is barely there. D.C. policy experts tend to not really pay attention to what Chinese academics and experts have to say. So there's an imbalance in U.S.-China competition. Another key finding is that Beijing is very isolated. It actually doesn't have a lot of people it can turn to who have the credentials that it likes to be associated with and who actually share its views. And instead, Beijing needs to resort to artificially inflating certain online personalities and trying to turn them into influencers. The influence data suggests that China has a sense of alienation from or even rejection by the broader world. Another key finding is that contrary to what we've seen in patterns of citations in the United States, citations in China are much more likely to be negative and critical. There's a tone of negativity, not just negativity, criticism and aggression in Chinese state media that you do not see in the same way in the United States. Finally, many of the people who Beijing is citing, again, ostensibly to try to reach U.S. audiences or gain credibility with U.S. audiences, are not actually the people who are probably most influential with policymakers in D.C. And so it suggests that there's a certain clumsiness in Beijing's approach and that their ability to conduct information operations is going to be constrained by either their lack of access to or their lack of understanding of U.S. elites. And as we get into the specific individuals who made the top rankings, which we'll do in a moment, I do think, to your point, Jeremy, when you look at, for example, the top 10 or the top 20 or the top 30 thought leaders we identified through the influencer analytics, it's a bizarre combination of who you would expect, but also who you might never expect. And so I think that really does align with your overall finding that this is in some ways a list that you would imagine, but in some ways makes absolutely no sense from an American perspective. So let's get into that and sort of explore. And we have a bunch to cover. And by the way, I should have mentioned earlier, this brief in its written form under the title, Who Influences Beijing, is available on our website, baronpa.com, where you'll have access to the entire brief that we released at the event. So Jeremy, why don't you cite a few key examples of the top thought leaders in our rankings, and then again, we can talk about the implications and the significance. Sure. So I'll just quickly walk through the top 10 and then again, our audience can refer to the more complete list on our website. So number one, Elon Musk. 
Number two is S.L. Canton. He is a Bangalore-based online personality who gained a very large online following recently, very rapidly. Henry Kissinger, I should note that we conducted this analysis shortly before he passed away. Number four is Seymour Hirsch, the independent journalist. Number five, Kishore Mabubani, who is best known as having previously served as the president of the UN Security Council from 2001-2002, currently is a professor at the National University of Singapore. Number six is Fareed Zakaria. Number seven, Gordon Chang, probably best known as the author of The Coming Collapse of China. Number eight is Jonathan Cheng, who is the China bureau chief at the Wall Street Journal. Number nine, Gao Luft, the longtime head of the Institute for the Analysis of Global Security, alleged by U.S. authorities to have acted as an unregistered foreign agent for China. Number 10, Ian Bremmer of the Eurasia Group. So those are the top 10. Just glancing down the list, looking at the top 30 or so, it's a mix of academics and think tank type China experts. There are a couple of CEOs in addition to Elon Musk. Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, is on the list. We have a couple of people who have former government experience, but surprisingly few. Larry Summers is on the list. But I think the key thing, and this comes through in not only the top 10, but in the top 30, it's a very unusual combination of highly establishment and what I would call highly edgy. It's these two things together. Right. You have Julian Assange and Edward Snowden, and you also have Larry Summers and Tim Cook. Precisely. And so, Jeremy, you spoke about this a little bit in the summary of key findings, but I'm curious, like, what do you make of that? It's a very unusual combination. In the influencer analytics work that we do in the United States, looking at the U.S. system, we don't get this kind of variation. It's much more consistent. And so what does that tell you about Beijing and what decision makers should know? I think that from Beijing's point of view, in an ideal world, it would have highly credentialed Western experts from elite institutions on its list and wouldn't have to rely on these more fringe personalities. But unfortunately for Beijing, it has become so discredited across the political spectrum in the United States that it struggles to find experts who have the right credentials and have, from Beijing's point of view, the right views. There's an additional dynamic here, which is that people on this list, such as Julian Assange and Edward Snowden, There are a few others. Code Pink probably falls in this category. Point to a fascination by Beijing of fractures and internal rifts and dysfunction within the United States and within American society. And it probably reflects China's own fears about its own internal lack of unity and homogeneity. One of the recurring themes and speeches by Chinese leaders including Xi Jinping, but also going far back in PRC history, is the importance of unifying China and the ongoing work of unifying China. And it's probably the case that from Beijing's point of view, America's weakness is its ability to potentially fall apart in the future. And what's so revealing, I think, Jeremy, and to your point about the list of top 10, but also of top 30, is how few what I would call pure pro-China champions, especially U.S. pro-China champions, make the list. There really is almost no one on the list who could be seen as, well, this is a real passionate supporter 
of the U.S.-China relationship and takes a very sympathetic view of China. So I think it'd be useful to dive in to this top 10 list, pull out a few examples and try to go into a little more detail. I'd like to start, Jeremy, with Gordon Chang, because for those who know Gordon Chang, it might seem surprising that he made the list given the intensity of his criticism of Beijing. Your thoughts? Gordon Chang is on this list because Beijing really doesn't like him. They're very concerned by what he says. I think that the best way to understand Gordon Chang is that he is a futurist. He is someone who has made predictions. He is best known for his predictions. Not all of his predictions have come to pass. And in the United States, in certain circles, he's been criticized for that. But Beijing is fascinated by futurists. So Gordon Chang's predictions are that the CCP is going to collapse and that China itself may collapse and fall apart in various ways. I think it's notable that of all the different China critics in the United States and all the different China hawks in D.C., the one who's best known for his forecasts and his futurism is the one who is most concerning to Beijing. So in many ways, Gordon Chang would be among the most surprising folks who made the list. Let's turn to the number one ranked influencer who may be in some ways the least surprising, Elon Musk. So like Gordon Chang, Elon Musk is a futurist, just in a slightly different way. Obviously, several of his companies have significant business interests in China, but he's not unique in that regard. He's not the only CEO of an American company that is commercially intertwined with China in some way. I think what makes him stand out in China from a Chinese point of view is that he's someone who is excited about tech and who is a futurist in a very populist way. I would also point out that very few CEOs made our list of thought leaders who operate as influencers in the way that we measured. And two of them, perhaps I think the only two, were Elon Musk and Tim Cook. And I have to think that the Chinese view both figures as not only incredibly prestigious, which they are, but also as leverage points. They are people who maintain significant influence in the United States, but also have a massive footprint in China. So I would imagine the Chinese view them as important conduits for influence and opportunities for them to leverage influence in the U.S. in ways that are not the case with other CEOs. I agree, but the fact that there are so few CEOs on this list makes me question whether these CEOs may be on this list partially because they wanted to be on this list. And I believe that they have each made it a part of their personal brand strategy and part of their corporate strategy to have a very strong presence in China and to capture the attention of the Chinese government. Tim Cook and Elon Musk are the only two CEOs in our top 30, in part because they have decided that they wanted to be the center of attention in the U.S.-China relationship, including in China. And we know from our work that not all CEOs and not all companies want to pursue that strategy. And in fact, many CEOs want to stay out of the spotlight. I think it's exactly right, Jeremy. I think that when CEOs signal to the Chinese system that they want to have a higher profile, that is properly received is also an opportunity by the Chinese side to leverage influence the other way. So it creates this two-way dynamic. Many CEOs want to avoid that dynamic because being in the middle of that back and forth has both opportunities but also carries risks. So I think it is noteworthy and something that probably merits further study. Let's move to number three. We mentioned him earlier, 
Henry Kissinger. Unsurprising that he would make this list. I think most people, if we were to ask them to predict who would have made the top 10, I think almost everybody would have cited Kissinger as being among their top 10, if not their top five or three. What does it tell us? Obviously, Henry Kissinger is unique, and there's so much to say about him. I just focus on two things. First of all, in the Chinese system, age is revered, and I think it's not a coincidence that someone who is 100 years old made it so high on this list. Second, and perhaps more importantly, the way Henry Kissinger spoke about China was in a way that resonated with Beijing elites. Kissinger often spoke about China beyond the day-to-day political frictions. He often spoke about the longer-term civilizational aspirations. Both sides have a missionary origin, but the missionary quality of America is that we think we, anybody in the world can become American or can follow our principles so that we believe in universal conversion. The Chinese also believe they have universal values, but you cannot become a Chinese if you are not inside the cultural orbit of the Chinese. So what the Chinese are looking for is majestic conduct, great achievement, which will then bring other countries into a relationship of respect towards China. This civilizational perspective is particularly well-received in China for reasons that may not be intuitive to most Americans. American society is strongly shaped by the news, which obviously does not exist in the same way in China. American society is shaped by recent events and discussion of recent events. In the Chinese system, where you don't have an independent media, there's a little bit of a vacuum there. And people who are able to talk about the world in ways that are a little removed from the day-to-day are able to resonate in China because they're operating outside of that U.S.-focused media cycle. And Johnny, I welcome your thoughts on how we should understand Henry Kissinger in light of the contrast of his role in China and his standing, especially toward the end of his life in the United States, What does that reveal about Washington and the changes in Washington over the last 30, 40, 50 years? I think Henry Kissinger fit uneasily in the categories in which Washington has thought in recent decades, as there has been more specialization, more of a focus on expertise. Obviously, he had his expertise, but it was in a generalist context. He wrote very large books on broad topics, not on bilateral foreign relations in the period 1949 to 1951. And I think that that generalism probably suited him well in China, given what Jeremy described, in addition to warm feeling toward him as a result of his involvement in the opening of China during the Nixon administration. Whereas I think an increasingly technocratic Washington elite probably looked at him with some skepticism as an artifact of a past that wasn't as smart as Washington is now from an establishment perspective. If you look at Kissinger's service in World War II prior to his career in academia and his tenure in the Nixon administration, 
and you consider him as having been part of the intelligence structure of the U.S. military in World War II. Those individuals were not holding graduate degrees in intelligence studies from Georgetown. On a lark before this episode, I looked at books on eBay inscribed by Henry Kissinger and one book for sale at a very healthy price for those of you with Amex Black Cards in our listening audience, was a copy of his book on nuclear weapons that he inscribed to Paul Nitza, the Cold War strategist. And I believe it's been a long time since I read parts of both of Paul Nitza's memoirs, but he was an investment banker before World War II. And I think Henry Kissinger hearkened to that class of figures. In some sense, he was a transitional figure between those wise men of the 1950s who had come to prominence during World War II and the intelligence and foreign policy establishment we have now. But I think to the intelligence and foreign policy establishment we had now, he was too much of a generalist and humanist. I think it's also worth pointing out that from a Chinese point of view, Kissinger probably seemed very Germanic in terms of his accent, his intellectual approaches. And in a Chinese context, there's a lot of interest in all things Germanic, Strauss, Carl Schmitt. Audis are much more popular than Lexuses, of course. There's this famous mythology about Xi knowing Goethe's Faust by memory. There is this, I think, cultural fascination by China as a continental empire with Germany, one of the other great continental empires. And China's fascination with technology and systems and categories From a Chinese point of view, people who seem Germanic are probably particularly relatable. Excellent insight, Jeremy. Let's move to one of the names that I have to say really surprised me, was not expecting it, Seymour Hirsch. And Seymour Hirsch, I think, although tellingly on this list, just in his own capacity, I think is reflective, as we mentioned earlier, of a category of individuals who made the top 10, 30 influencers who I think are commonly seen in the U.S. context as edgy, aggressive, radical in some way or another. So speak, Jeremy, not only to Seymour Hersh as an individual, but the category of folks captured by Seymour Hersh. I think it's worth noting that in the Chinese educational system before Western-style universities were brought to China in the very early 1900s, Most elites received their education from tutors. There's a culture of mentorship and one-on-one tutoring in China. In martial arts, similarly, there are disciples and masters. There's this chain of credentials that are brought not by belonging to an institution, but by being someone's personal student. And it's interesting that when China messages to the United States regarding Seymour Hersh, For example, Chen Weihua, who most recently has been the EU bureau chief for China Daily, argued that Seymour Hersh was, I quote, one of the greatest journalists that BBC or CNN ever produced. In other words, from a Chinese point of view, his legitimacy is based on his stature as a senior journalist. It's this idea of the master craftsman and... I think what Beijing probably doesn't understand is that just because they view him as particularly important because he is so senior, that rationale doesn't work in the United States. And he is dismissed in the United States by many because of some of the views that he has recently espoused. And Chinese state-run media probably does not understand why someone of such esteemed stature 
and with such tremendous credentials is not taken as seriously in the West as they believe he should be. Jeremy, let's move from the individuals, the thought leaders that we identify through the influencer analytics to companies and the list of top companies who ranked as influencers and what the names on that list tell us. This list is surprisingly narrow. In the top roughly 30 or so top companies, most companies are in the tech sector. And the companies that are outside of tech are relatively few. There are a few automakers, Volkswagen, Ford, BMW. Boeing and Airbus feature on the list as well. But for the most part, this is a list of tech companies, which is interesting because China has stated ambitions across pretty much the entire economy. And so one might think that the companies that China talks about would be similarly distributed across the entire economy, or at least some kind of similar distribution to what you see in the Fortune 50 or Fortune 100 or 500. But the very narrow focus on tech raises questions about whether China's ambitions are perhaps more limited than they publicly state, or whether its capabilities are more limited, or whether it believes that the key to achieving dominance in other sectors is really going to be via tech and nothing else. So I think the way to understand China's worldview at this point is that it views the private sector in terms of tech and non-tech. And to be specific, Jeremy, out of the top 10 companies who led the influencer analytics rankings, eight of the 10 are what I would call pure tech, and two of the 10 are automotive. So as you say, I think quite rightly, it's a fairly narrow category or definition of companies in very particular areas and not what we might have expected given China's deep involvement in many sectors of the global economy. One really striking pattern in the data is that China talks about American companies much more than it talks about Chinese companies. So out of the top 10 companies, only three are Chinese, Huawei, ByteDance slash TikTok, and Tencent slash WeChat. The rest are non-Chinese and principally American. I think that this is because China has produced relatively few companies that Beijing is truly proud of. And this is a very important phenomenon. Even as China's GDP has grown, and even as China has tremendous economic leverage over the United States and over other countries, it has relatively few corporate success stories. Moreover, those companies that China has produced that are truly successful in a way that Beijing is proud of tend to not be consumer-facing companies. They tend to not be consumer brands. China seems to have real difficulty in producing consumer-facing brands. Jeremy, as we go deeper into the rankings of top companies, the pattern continues very heavily tech, heavily automotive, But as you get farther down in the rankings, there is also a flurry of financial services names. Goldman Sachs is on the list. Morgan Stanley's on the list. Exactly. So what is that representation of finance? Because other than those names, you've got all tech, all automotive, basically. So any thoughts on the presence, even though it is farther down, of the financial services names? I think Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley are significant, not as consumer-facing financial services companies, but as elite investment banks. And 
if the Chinese government wants to associate itself with the most elite American institutions possible or the most elite Western institutions generally, it will pick elite investment banks. Keep in mind that many Chinese elites were educated at U.S. universities or their children studied at U.S. universities. If I'm a Chinese official and my child is studying at Harvard or recently studied at Harvard, I'm aware that one of the most sought-after employers post-graduation will be Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs. So I think they're well-attuned to the elite appeal associated with these organizations. I want to add that... The presence of the automotive companies is another data point we have showing Chinese interest in capturing the global auto market, which is a subject we've discussed before, I think, on this podcast. I was in Israel over the summer, and I took down a list of all of the Chinese EV manufacturers whose cars I saw on the road. And I'll rattle them off. There was MG, a British brand that has since been acquired by a Chinese entity. Iways, Skywell, Cherry, Leap Motors, EVEZ, Geely, BYD. That's just a partial list. And I saw multiple vehicles in parking garages, on local roads, on divided highways. I think that's a taste of the Chinese ambition to conquer the global automotive market because of low electric vehicle penetration in this country, in part because of Americans' preference for large vehicles and a lack of access to critical materials. We have not understood the picture of the automotive market in other countries that previously were important export destinations for U.S. automakers. I think our rankings here of top companies is suggestive of that trend, and it wouldn't surprise me if we see more clashes between U.S. car companies and Chinese car companies all over the world. You see also the challenges that Chinese automakers are going to face in terms of brand appeal. If you contrast Chinese auto brands with Japanese auto brands, Japanese auto brands sound very Japanese. Toyota, Honda, Nissan, Mitsubishi. The success of Japanese automakers in the 1980s in the United States was correlated really with the brand that Japan had as a rising power and a very technologically sophisticated power. Japanese automakers were not trying to avoid their Japanese identity. Even if they began manufacturing in the United States, their brand was the brand of Japan. Whereas you see with Chinese automakers, there's a certain discomfort. So you have names like BYD, Great Wall. These are not names that are purely Chinese. They are trying to bridge to the West because there's a certain discomfort with China as a brand. So I think that's going to be an obstacle that Chinese automakers are going to have to work through if they want to be as successful as the Japanese automakers have been. So I think putting both of your points together and considering this list of top companies who ranked highly as influencers, I think it reveals the current and unfolding conflict points in the U.S.-China bilateral economic relationship, which is tech, automotive, and probably capital markets access. And that's what this list signals. And I think that's probably a pretty good guide to what will happen in the coming months and years as the U.S. and China intensify their competition. And it seems to me this is a great signal as to what China seeks to prioritize. I would add aviation and logistics to that list, just given the inclusion of Boeing and Airbus. A good point. But I agree. So let's bring this to some practical advice. So two categories of leaders that we should think about. 
One is political leaders. So you're sitting in Congress or maybe you're sitting in the executive branch. And given what we've revealed, how should this affect the U.S. government's approach to China and U.S. foreign policy strategy? I think the most important implication is that Beijing is looking at the United States closely. Beijing cares about what American experts and leaders say and that they care about what we say probably much more than we care about what they say. So for leaders and strategists in the U.S. government, the most important thing is to be aware of the role of signaling in the U.S.-China relationship. Most of the signals that are being sent by the United States to China are inadvertent at this point. When a member of Congress puts out a press release on anything about China, that is part of the U.S.-China relationship. That is part of the signaling that is really the foundation of U.S.-China competition. And so there are a lot of opportunities to shape that signaling, and that is the most important thing for government leaders and strategists to consider. The data show the outsized power of U.S. institutions of higher education. I think the federal government has shown an interest in Chinese influence at U.S. colleges and universities, but perhaps in the wrong place. There was a very controversial FBI program to investigate scientific and technological espionage by university faculty, by graduate students. But perhaps the U.S. government looked in the wrong place. Instead of the faculty lounge or the graduate student lounge, they should have been more focused on the administration building at these universities. Not from the perspective of espionage, but the policies that these university leaders set, their reception of Chinese students, both undergraduates and graduates, are a powerful lever that the United States has in the U.S.-China relationship. There are very few American students who study in China, but the children of Chinese elites consistently study in the United States. And we have not had, to use a cliche that Henry Kissinger probably would not have liked, a whole-of-government approach to U.S. higher education as a card we can play in our strategic competition with Beijing. And Johnny... I think that often the U.S. government sees Chinese engagement of U.S. institutions, including universities, as purely a story of infiltration. And certainly it is partially that, but it's also a signal of the esteem that Chinese elites assign to U.S. institutions. And that, to your point, Jeremy, is a real opportunity if leveraged in the right way. And the U.S. generally does not think in those terms. Turning to business leaders... And Jeremy, the firm, we have these conversations with clients all the time and other folks that we interact with in the business community. Someone has assets in China they're trying to protect. They're trying to increase market access in China. Or there's a Chinese competitor that's going beyond China's borders and being to compete with U.S. companies and other companies globally in the United States, et cetera. How should they understand this information? And how is this information useful as they navigate those difficult scenarios? First of all, for any company with assets in China, it's really important to be able to quantitatively monitor Beijing's views. So creating some kind of dashboard, similar to what we've done, customized to a sector or a company, to be able to measure when and how Beijing's areas of interest change, I think it's a must-have for any company with major assets in China. For companies who are really trying to not just monitor but shape Beijing, 
there are underappreciated opportunities. I think that most companies don't think about Beijing in the way that they think about Washington, D.C. They think about shaping opinion in D.C. I don't think many of them think about shaping opinion in Beijing. But I think our data indicates that it is possible. There are certain types of views and certain types of experts in certain institutions that Beijing has a lot of esteem for. And I'm convinced that in a legitimate way, U.S. organizations can shape Beijing's thinking by working with the types of experts and institutions and ideas that Beijing is attracted to. So this point, Jeremy, you're making is very counterintuitive because no one in the United States would think to go to China to influence sentiment in Washington. But it is very much the case that, based on our research and our experience, that sentiment in China can be influenced based on activity in Washington. So that is not an obvious point you're making, but it's an important one. And I do think that few companies execute thought leadership programs designed to leverage U.S. experts, institutions, and others as a way of, as you said, signaling to the Chinese system. But everything that we've seen suggests that is a very promising path, but one that is rarely pursued. I think that's exactly right. I think there's a lot of opportunity, and I think that the most ambitious and innovative companies will have a significant early mover advantage. An excellent conversation. I want to thank you, Jeremy, for leading the discussion and for your leadership, especially of our Influencer Analytics project on Beijing, which got a great reception, and I think it's an outstanding piece of research. So thank you for that. Johnny, thank you, as always, for your contributions. And I want to thank our audience for joining us for another edition of the Political Risk Brief. Mm-hmm.